Hey, it's Guy here, and this week we've got a brand new episode for you, The Last Frontier. But before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to tell you about another podcast from our friends over at TED called The TED Interview. On each episode, head of TED Chris Anderson picks up with speakers where they left off to take a deeper dive into their bold ideas. You can find The TED Interview anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, a quick reminder to donate to your local public radio station before the end of the year to show your support for programs like this one. Your support is crucial to your local station. So just go to donate.npr.org slash TEDradio to make your year-end gift. And thanks. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So what do we know about life out there, beyond our planet? Space, a final frontier. Does it even exist? And if it does, how close are we to finding it? To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. So from a The science perspective, the probability, I think, for life, even complex life, is getting better. This is Jim Green. He's chief scientist at NASA. And it's based on scientific knowledge of finding locations like exoplanets, like um, uh, we now know in our own solar system, places where uh, even the giant planets with tidal forces sitting out in the outer edges of those solar systems could indeed produce environments where there's a significant amount of water and and if you have the right organic materials and enough time that perhaps life evolved in that in those particular areas Mm. so i think we all are going to say we haven't found it yet we haven't found it in the solar system but um, uh, i think the probability is getting better you know i think um, uh, we have the abilities and the technologies it's a matter of will Here's more from Jim Green on the TED stage. So, how do we make this journey? What we decided to do is first look for those ingredients for life. The ingredients of life are liquid water. We have to have a solvent. We also have to have energy. We also have to have organic material, things that make us up, but also things that we need to consume. So we have to have these elements in environments for long periods of time for us to be able to be confident that life can spark and then grow and evolve. Well, I have to tell you that early in my career, when we look at those three elements, I didn't believe that they were beyond Earth in any length of time and for any real quantity. Why? We look at the inner planets. Venus is way too hot. It's got no water. Mars, dry and arid, it's got no water. And beyond Mars, the water in the solar system is all frozen. But recent observations have changed all that. It's now turning our attention to the right places for us to take a deeper look and really start to answer our life question. So, what would it take for us to find or even sustain life outside of our own planet? Could we discover another place to call home? Another Earth? Well, today on the show, we're going to explore the next frontier. Ideas about living beyond our own planet. Will we actually colonize Mars or another planet? Can humans become a spacefaring species? And should we? Or does the real challenge of our lifetime actually start a bit closer to home? Well, for Jim Green, the possibility of life elsewhere is very real. 
especially when it comes to life in one of its simplest and smallest forms, as microorganisms. And they could exist in our very own solar system. I have to assume that this is a question, is there life beyond our Earth? I have to assume this is a question that is t- taken very seriously by scientists. Um, yeah, you have to take a broader view, too, uh, I do anyway, of the solar system, and, and that is uh, when we look for life beyond Earth and the solar system, uh, when we have a good idea as to what these planets look like and what their characteristics are today, they haven't always been like that. Right. We now know, you know, that uh, our climate has done nothing but change. It's going to continue to change. Uh, that's true on our other two major terrestrial planets, Venus and Mars. In fact, we have great indications that both Venus and Mars were much more Earth-like early on in their life uh, with a significant amount of water. You know, Venus had a significant ocean and maybe for a significant period of time before it went through a runaway greenhouse effect. And, of course, what happens is you you break the normal water cycle and you start losing water. And water is also a great greenhouse gas. And then you have um, Mars, which uh, we also have great indication that has a significant amount of water. And, I mean, that's physical because we're sitting there right now making those kind of measurements with with our rovers. And, in fact, two-thirds of the northern hemisphere probably was um, uh, water, uh, even up to about a mile deep. So those are wonderful environments, so they could have harbored life in their past. So what about Mars? Let's go through the evidence. Well, Mars, we thought was initially moon-like, full of craters in a dead world. And so about 15 years ago, we started a series of missions to go to Mars and see if water existed on Mars in its past that changed its geology. We ought to be able to notice that. And indeed, we started to be surprised right away. Our higher resolution images show deltas and river valleys and gullies that were there in the past. And in fact, Curiosity, which has been roving on the surface now for about three years, has really shown us that it's sitting in an ancient riverbed where water flowed rapidly and not for a little while, perhaps hundreds of millions of years. And if everything was there, including organics, perhaps life had started. Curiosity is also drilled in that red soil and brought up other material. And we were really excited when we saw that because it wasn't red Mars, it was gray material, it's gray Mars. We brought it into the rover, we tasted it. And guess what? We tasted organics, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, they were all there. So Mars, in its past, with a lot of water, perhaps plenty of time, could have had life, could have had that spark, could have grown. And is that life still there? Well, it tells us that Mars has all the ingredients necessary for life. It has all the right conditions. I mean, if you know, as, as you say, we tasted organics on Mars, right? Carbon and hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, etc. I mean, would that be enough to uh, allow humans to live there? Absolutely. And huh. the more we know about Mars, the more feasible it's becoming. For instance, Mars doesn't have a moon like we do. And so its axis has really swung around significantly. We have found buried the ancient pole of Mars. And and in some cases, it's uh, uh, 700 meters or more of ice. This would probably be pure water. Uh, The place is large. It's bigger than the state of Maryland. This is, you're talking about this this frozen lake? uh, No, it's a frozen polar cap. It's the ancient polar cap. Mm -hmm. The size of Maryland. Okay, that's a lot of water. Yeah, and it's mid-latitudes right now. So the ability to be able to have a base of operation where you can leverage and use that resource is uh, completely viable. In fact, a Japanese uh, research group at University of Kyoto is uh, looking at how to grow poplars 
Okay. Hmm. Trees. The trees, yeah. Yeah, in Mars soil. They have a simulant in addition to the carbon dioxide uh, pressure and temperature of Mars. And, uh, you know, we'll check in with them in another year and see what happens. So conceptually, a lot of research can be moving in the right direction that will really be quite exciting. I I know that we humans... Like we are a self-absorbed species, right? That we think of ourselves at the center of everything. But if we do discover some kind of life on Mars or, or even beyond, you know, like single-celled organisms or whatever it might be, and that, of course, would be super exciting. But just out of curiosity, like what does that do for us? Like how does it – does it actually make a difference for humans? Well, sure it does. Oh, absolutely. So uh, let's take a couple of examples. All right. Once you find life, let's say single-celled organisms on Mars, a whole new qu- series of questions come about, okay? Mm. Those questions are, how are we related to it? Is it a DNA-based? Is the concept of panspermia, the idea of impacts carrying life uh, away from a planet until it falls on another planet and, and then seeding that planet and then starting life again, is that the right relationship? Or is it really a second genesis? So hmm. now if we jump to a place like Europa. And, and Europa is one of Jupiter's moons. Correct. Europa has got this magnificent ocean with um, what we believe are hydrothermal vents. It's an active geological body where ice tectonics are going on, where one plate is slipping under others. As cracks are forming, water is circulating to the surface. There's an entire uh, circulation of material in the ocean. The radiation environment that it's in seems to indicate that as the uh, high-energy particles hit the surface, that the oxygenation occurs in the ocean and has a fabulous environment. And it's been like that for four and a half billion years. Wow. Okay. And so that would definitely be a second genesis. We couldn't get rocks from Mars and um, Earth from impacts with life on them all the way up that far into the solar system to be able to pelt uh, Europa so much that it could start life. So we would want to probe that. But the bottom line is... um, We might have now answered the question, yes, life is elsewhere in the solar system, maybe related to us verifying panspermia, maybe not, but we have opportunities clearly to potentially find life uh, that's a second genesis. I wouldn't discount the outer part of the solar system, particularly once Mars is firmly in human grasp and we're able to explore it freely and and really understand it, then there's the possibility of launching from Mars on outward. Ah, And so um, that would be entertained in the very distant future. Well, is there life beyond Earth in the solar system? We don't know yet, but we're hot on the pursuit. The data that we're receiving is really exciting and telling us, forcing us to think about this in new and exciting ways. I believe we're on the right track, that in the next 10 years, we will answer that question. And if we answer it, and it's positive, then life is everywhere in the solar system. Just think about that. We may not be alone. Thank you. Jim Green, he's chief scientist at NASA. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Exploring the Next Frontier. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft. Microsoft wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, is now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. 
Thanks also to Capital One. With the new Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new restaurant everyone's talking about and 4% on watching your team win at home. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank USA NA. This week on Ask Me Another, we hit the stage in sunny San Diego, California with American Idol alum Adam Lambert and skateboarding legend Tony Hawk. All this on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the next frontier. And you may think that right now... Sending a handful of astronauts to Mars would be a major milestone. But what about sending 100 people to Mars to, you know, start a colony? Could we actually do that one day? Yep. But we're talking like like hundreds of years in the future, right? We're talking a decade to 15 years from now at the most. This is science writer Stephen Petranek. And even though it might sound like science fiction... Stephen says it will happen, whether through NASA or SpaceX or some other group. Humans will colonize Mars. We've had all the technology we need, the machines that can make oxygen for us to breathe on Mars, the habitats that we need on Mars. We developed all this stuff 30, 40 years ago. We've had this technology for decades. Stephen Petranek has all of this mapped out. In fact, he's written a book about it called How We'll Live on Mars. And he picks up the idea from the TED stage. Strap yourselves in. We're going to Mars. Not just a few astronauts. Thousands of people are going to colonize Mars. And I am telling you that they're going to do this soon. Some of you will end up working on projects on Mars. And I guarantee that some of your children will end up living there. That probably sounds preposterous. So... Let me tell you about the extraordinary adventure we're about to undertake. Mars is not our sister planet. And that extraordinary adventure Stephen describes? It starts with traveling 250 million miles to Mars, which means living in a spacecraft for eight months. One of the most important things about sending people to Mars is making the trip getting there pleasant and fun. Mm. The accommodations will be extremely pleasant, far more pleasant than the most luxurious first-class accommodations in any aircraft in the world. There will be much more space than you think. There will be common meeting areas. People will have meals together. Wow. So you've got this great first-class accommodation and great food. And by the way, like, where's the water going to – like, water's super heavy. How do you carry all that delicious food up? Water is super heavy, and you want to get the water down to a minimum. So, for example, all the food will be freeze-dried and reconstructed with water aboard. But all the water in that spacecraft will be recycled. The water that humans use doesn't disappear. Part of it goes into their body, and the rest of it is expelled. And the part that is expelled will be reconditioned and reused. So you're talking about, like, you know, bottled water of pee. Correct. That happens now on the space station, for example, on the International Space Station. Yeah. Um, That happens in submarines. That happens in lots of different environments. Hmm. So what what happens when we we land? Like, where would we go? Where where would we live? What, What do we eat? We will send everything we need for the first few years of life on Mars to Mars before the first humans get there. Then we will use robots to assemble habitats, to unpack the cargo shipments that we sent, to create some kind of living quarters that we can move out of the spaceship into. Okay, so I get it. So you're going to sort of pre-launch the... It's like doing the Appalachian Trail, right? You, like, send packages to yourself ahead of time. Correct. All right, so we're there with like 100 other people, and we're like, okay, here we are, we're on Mars. And food eventually is going to run out. Like we've got a clock starts ticking once we land there because, yeah, we've sent some shipments of food and stuff, but 
I mean, right? We got to start growing stuff. What happens? To live on Earth, you need food, water, shelter, and clothing. To live on Mars, you need food, water, shelter, clothing, and something to breathe. So let's look at the most important thing on this list first. Water is the basis of all life as we know it. And if you look at Mars, it looks really dry. It looks like an, the entire planet is a desert. But it turns out that it's not. A number of orbiters that we still have flying around Mars have shown us that lots of craters on Mars have a sheet of water ice in them. So there's plenty of water there, but most of it's ice. And it turns out that Mars' atmosphere is often 100% humid. This is a device cooked up at the University of Washington back in 1998. This device can extract all the water that humans will need simply from the atmosphere on Mars. Next, we have to worry about what we will breathe. This is a scientist at MIT named Michael Hecht. And he's developed this machine, MOXIE. I love this thing. It's a reverse fuel cell, essentially, that sucks in the Martian atmosphere and pumps out oxygen. And it will be able to produce enough oxygen to keep one person alive indefinitely. But the secret to this is that this thing was designed from the get-go to be scalable by a factor of 100. Next, what will we eat? Well, we'll use hydroponics to grow food, but we're not going to be able to grow more than 15 to 20 percent of our food there, at least not until we actually have the probability and the capability of planting crops. In the meantime, most of our food will arrive from Earth, and it will be dried. And then we need some shelter. There is too much solar radiation and too much radiation from cosmic rays. So we really have to go underground. Now, it turns out that the soil on Mars, by and large, is perfect for making bricks. And NASA has figured this one out, too. They're going to throw some polymer plastic into the bricks, shove them in a microwave oven, and then you will be able to build buildings with really thick walls. And finally, there's clothing. On Earth, we have miles of atmosphere piled up on us, which creates 15 pounds of pressure on our bodies at all times, and we're constantly pushing out against that. On Mars, there's hardly any atmospheric pressure. So Davin Newman, a scientist at MIT, has created this sleek spacesuit. It will keep us together, block radiation, and keep us warm. So let's think about this for a minute. Food, shelter, clothing, water, oxygen. We can do this. I don't know about this. Radiation, living underground, uh, freeze-dried food. Like, we, we might have some hydroponics, but it's, it's a really harsh environment. So um, would, you, would you go? Like, would you want to live in those conditions? I would. I wouldn't go on the first trip. I think the early trips are going to be extremely dangerous. But I would like to die on Mars, just preferably not on impact. Hmm. I think it would be the greatest adventure of a lifetime. Yeah. I think... What happens with Mars is we build a civilization of maybe a million people within the first hundred years, and we start to terraform the planet. And when you say terraform, you mean like basically to re-engineer Mars to make it like the climate and the atmosphere more like Earth? Correct. That sounds like a lot of hubris, but the truth is that the technology to do everything I'm about to tell you already exists. First, we've got to warm it up. Mars is incredibly cold because it has a very thin atmosphere. The answer lies here at the South Pole and at the North Pole of Mars, both of which are covered with an incredible amount of frozen carbon dioxide, dry ice. If we heat it up, it sublimes directly into the atmosphere and thickens the atmosphere the same way it does on Earth. And as we know, CO2 is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. It actually won't take long for the temperature on Mars to start rising, probably less than 20 years. Right now, on a perfect day, temperatures can actually reach 70 degrees, but then they go down to minus 100 at night. <laughs> what we're shooting for is a runaway greenhouse effect. Enough temperature rise to see a lot of that ice on Mars, especially the ice in the ground, melt. As the atmosphere gets thicker, everything gets better. We get more protection from radiation, more atmosphere makes the planet warmer, so we get running water, and that makes crops possible. It will rain and it will snow on Mars. Eventually, Mars will be made to feel 
a lot like British Columbia. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I get even though the technology exists, to, to me and to I think a lot of people listening, this sounds outlandish. Yes. But you are convinced this is going to happen, that humans will do this. One of the reasons that I wrote the TED book, How We'll Live on Mars, is that I wanted to tell people that this is a completely unregulated environment. People are going to Mars, whether we like it or not. SpaceX is devoted to getting to Mars. There's going to be a space race to Mars. People are going to Mars. There's going to be a civilization on Mars. It's going to happen a lot sooner than people think. The only reason that I'm trying to point all this stuff out is that now it's the time to think about this. Let me let me just push back on something for, for a second here, because a lot of people, like astronomers and scientists, they, they're saying we should not be focused on looking to Mars as a backup planet, right? That, that instead we should be focused on fixing Earth. Like this is our planet, we, and we're destroying it. I'm sympathetic with the idea of leaving Mars alone for scientific exploration and not for massive human habitation because Mars is an extraordinary scientific park, just as we've treated Antarctica as a scientific park. But we need to get realistic here. Homo sapiens arose in Africa two million years ago. It wasn't till about 60,000 years ago that they began to leave Africa in mass, and they moved beyond the next horizon, and they moved beyond the next horizon, and they eventually populated the entire Earth. They learned along the way that that is a survival technique. Humans have been a nomadic species for 99% of their existence. It's only in the last 20,000 years that we've actually built towns, had sustainable agriculture, and created a food supply that would allow us to stay in one place. That's a very recent development. I think that actually exploration is built into our DNA. And I think it's important that it's built into our DNA because if the human species is to survive, it must become an interplanetary species. And I'm not just talking about Mars. You have to go well beyond Mars. I think by then we've found other habitable Earth-like planets where we don't have to terraform them that we can actually reach in a human lifespan. And then we begin to move off of Mars and beyond Mars in this nomadic way to other planets. And that, it like hurts your Earth-first kind of sensibilities to say, oh, we're just a species that keeps moving on and using up resources. But the truth is that those resources that we're using up are expendable. You know, eventually the sun begins to expand and completely destroys the Earth. Yeah, we got a couple hundred million years before that happens. I mean, you know, call me an Earth firster, guilty, but I mean, you know, like this is kind of makes sense that we're here to stay for a while until, until, you know, until we go. But I think we still have some time. Well, first of all, humans are not going to move to Mars as the preferable place to be. There's going to be just a few million people. The vast majority of people are going to continue to live on Earth. But you do need a backup planet. Ask any 10-year-old girl if she wants to go to Mars. Children who are now in elementary school are going to choose to live there. Think for a moment what we had when John F. Kennedy told us we would put a human on the moon. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? He excited an entire generation to dream. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because Remember when we landed humans on the moon? When that happened, people looked at each other and said, if we can do this, we can do anything. Think how inspired we will be to see a landing on Mars. What are they going to think when we actually form a colony on Mars? Most importantly, it will make us a space-faring species. And that means humans will survive no matter what happens on Earth. We will never be the last of our kind. Thank you.
That's Stephen Petranek. He's the author of the book, How We'll Live on Mars. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Okay, so Stephen Petranek says we are going to Mars maybe in the next decade. And let's just say for a moment this is going to happen. And then you you have the chance to help colonize it. This would mean spending eight months in a spacecraft before finally touching down on the red planet. You'd put on your spacesuit, you'd open up the hatch, and then you'd see the vast Martian desert stretched out right in front of you. So what are you experiencing at that moment? Like, what's going on? Well, a lot of things you probably can't see yet. This is Lisa Nip. She's a researcher at MIT. Probably a lot of very strong cosmic rays have passed through your body. Oh, uh, that doesn't sound good. Unfortunately, that will be the case for every planet that we visit that doesn't have an atmosphere like that on Earth. And so you're going to be bombarded every day with a lot of radiation. And over time, all that damage that you don't see will start to manifest itself as cancer. And you will just experience a very slow and painful death. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to sound morbid. (laughs) Lisa Nip has spent a lot of time thinking about what will happen when humans start traveling across our solar system and beyond. What will happen to our bodies? And unlike Stephen Petranek, Lisa has come to believe that future colonizers will not be able to change their environments enough to allow them to survive. She says that people will have to change themselves using synthetic biology. Lisa Nip picks up her idea from the TED stage. Our cosmic voyages will be fraught with dangers both known and unknown. So far, we've been looking to this new piece of mechanical technology or that great next-generation robot as part of a lineup to ensure our species' safe passage in space. Wonderful as they are, I believe the time has come for us to complement these bulky electronic giants with what is known as synthetic biology. It comes from molecular biology, which has given us antibiotics, vaccines, and better ways to observe the physiological nuances of the human body. Using the tools of synthetic biology, we can now edit the genes of nearly any organism, microscopic or not, with incredible speed and fidelity. Given the limitations of our man-made machines, synthetic biology will be a means for us to engineer not only our food, our fuel, and our environment, but also ourselves to compensate for our physical inadequacies and to ensure our survival in space. To give you an example of how we can use synthetic biology for a space exploration, let us return to the Mars environment. What if Martian soil could actually support plant growth without using Earth-derived nutrients? How would we make our plants cold-tolerant? How do we make our plants drought-tolerant? Well, it turns out we've already done things like this. By borrowing genes for antifreeze protein from fish and genes for drought tolerance from other plants like rice, and then stitching them into the plants that need them, We now have plants that can tolerate most droughts and freezes. So we can use synthetic biology to bring highly engineered plants with us, but what else can we do? Unless we plan to stay holed up underground for the duration of our stay on every new planet, we must find better ways of protecting ourselves without needing to hide behind a wall of lead. When we come back in just a moment, Lisa Nip explains that the key to humans becoming a space-faring species might be fungus. On our show today, ideas about the next frontier. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Walmart. Walmart is using virtual reality to train managers and associates on everything from customer service to community leadership. Here's Senior Director of Digital Operations, Brock McKeel. And so now you're immersed in that experience, and now your brain remembers it because it's like you've done it and you've been there, though you never left the conference room or the classroom that you were standing in. 
To learn more about how Walmart leverages virtual reality, visit walmarttoday.com slash training. Thanks also to Yahoo Small Business. With Yahoo Small Business, you can easily build a mobile-friendly website for your business, hobby, or personal need in minutes. Select a theme, customize, and launch your business idea online. No coding required. Get the website builder for free when you sign up for a subscription at smallbusiness.yahoo.com today. And one very last thing, don't forget to go to donate.npr.org slash tedradio to show your support for our show and for your local public radio station. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the next frontier. And we were just hearing from MIT researcher Lisa Knepp, who says that even with the latest technology, we humans just aren't built for living out in space. And so her solution? Synthetic biology, genetically modifying ourselves to adapt. So how, how would we do that? Okay, so this is, this is very many leap years away. But have you heard of how in Chernobyl, you know, the radioactive site now? Yeah, yeah. So scientists have discovered uh, fungal species are able to actually survive on radiation. Not only just live, but they, they survive. There's a fungus that survives on radiation in Chernobyl. Yes. Wow. What's interesting is that when they're exposed to radiation, they have melanin that actually generates electricity. Hmm. And obviously to translate that into an entire human being is going to be many, many steps away. But if we still have funding for science and are okay with it as a species, that's an avenue that will and can be explored. Essentially, a human that would need and require radiation to live and thrive. Correct. Which is what Mars is filled with. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so you can imagine that a human being that just feeds off radiation probably won't need to eat anymore. But that just sounds so so out there. Like, how would that work? How, how would scientists go about figuring out how to inject people with the powers of fungus? Right. So it's not easy, but the radio-tolerant fungi, we know that they survive with melanin. And conveniently, humans also have melanin. And that's what's in our skin that makes us tan, brown, and... The way to go about actually testing it would obviously start in a dish, in a lab, and to see whether the fungal version would actually survive conversion to a mammalian version. And after finding the similarities, we start coming in with our molecular scalpels and tweaking until we find something that is able to survive on its own and also be able to withstand any kind of immune rejection from the human body. I mean, it's not, I guess it's not that crazy to have this conversation. Like, if you and me were like a, an ocean or sea-faring creature several million years ago, Mm -hmm. and we all had a conference and one of us piped up and said, hey, we have to figure out how to live on the land. You know, we're going to have to figure out how to breathe differently and, and, you know, grow different parts of our bodies, like, uh, you know, all the other tadpoles or whatever would say, you're nuts, you're crazy, but look at us now, (laughs) right? Here we are. Here we are walking on two legs on planet Earth. Yeah, I think what you're pointing out to is that natural evolution has allowed organisms to morph in ways that make changes so drastic that you wouldn't have expected a connection. What what is the timeline we're talking about here? We're talking about uh, like hundreds of years, thousands of years? It's possibly thousands of years away, but I think we're starting to get our feet wet and being able to handle the biological tools to know when and where to make changes. Every day, the human body evolves by accidental mutations that equally accidentally allow certain humans to persevere in dismal situations. But such evolution requires two things that we may not always have, and they are death and time. We may not always have the time necessary for the natural evolution of extra functions for survival on non-Earth planets. 
We're living in what E.O. Wilson has termed the age of gene circumvention, during which we remedy our genetic defects like cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy with temporary external supplements. But with every passing day, we approach the age of volitional evolution, a time during which we as a species will have the capacity to decide for ourselves our own genetic destiny. Augmenting the human body with new abilities is no longer a question of how, but of when. So there was a recent report in China where uh, a scientist claimed to have genetically engineered a human baby to be resistant to AIDS. Twins, in fact. Um, We as a scientific community kind of balk at this because it was done without considering the moral and ethical consequences. Right. For us to actually reach any kind of consensus on the editing of humans requires a greater amount of scientific education worldwide so that everybody is informed before we have a discussion. I think the way that was done, it just doesn't sit well with people. I mean, so, so what you're saying is that if humans want to go to Mars, we, we have to come to some kind of consensus about gene editing around human synthetic biology because that's the only way we're going to survive there long term? Yes, that's exactly right. If you, if we as a species decide that we intend to stay there for hundreds of years and you want to do that without any changes to the human body, then you'll have to accept that there is a certain number of deaths that will happen. People will die and you will have to say that they died because we wanted to keep them as human as possible. But if you want them to survive, I think the mind needs to accept that the human body is malleable and that it can change. And that's okay. Mars is a destination, but it will not be our last. Our path to the stars will be rife with trials that will bring us to question not only who we are, but where we will be going. The answers will lie in our choice to use or abandon the technology that we have gleaned from life itself. And it will define us for the remainder of our term in this universe. Thank you. Lisa Nip is a researcher at MIT's Media Lab. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Does the idea of space as a, as a as a frontier is that does that inspire you? That's a good question. I don't think the framing of space as a frontier is really what inspires me. I think it's just space itself. This is astronomer Lucianne Walkowicz. Lucianne is one of many scientists searching for habitable places in the universe. One of the interesting things about astrobiology, which is the the name for this field of study of, you know, life, the universe, and everything in it, (laughs) um, it touches on questions that are both scientific and both fundamentally human about wanting to understand where human beings fit in the larger context, not only of our own world, our planet Earth, but where planet Earth fits in the larger context of the universe. And that, to me, is inspiring. Yeah. For me, the word frontier is a little sticky in that I don't think that a lot of things that we think of as having been frontiers on Earth were actually frontiers for the people that were already living there. Sure. So, you know, when we think about going to space, I actually think it's unnecessary to think of it that way just to be excited by it. So when you hear people say things like, you know, we have to send humans to explore space or we should colonize Mars, um, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I think um, it's wonderful to talk about going into space. I think that there are some very compelling reasons scientifically for wanting to go to Mars and even for um, sending humans there. The thing that I find really problematic is when people kind of preach this existential anxiety narrative about going to Mars. Um, You know, that human species will be uh, extincted tomorrow by, you know, asteroid from outer space and all this stuff. I think that that fear-driven narrative is actually really harmful on a couple of different levels. 
Lucianne Walkowicz explains more from the TED stage. We're at a tipping point in human history, a species poised between gaining the stars and losing the planet we call home. Even in just the past few years, we've greatly expanded our knowledge of how Earth fits within the context of our universe. NASA's Kepler mission has discovered thousands of potential planets around other stars. Unfortunately, at the same time as we're discovering this treasure trove of potentially habitable worlds, our own planet is sagging under the weight of humanity. Glaciers and sea ice that have been with us for millennia are now disappearing in a matter of decades. These planetary-scale environmental changes that we have set in motion are rapidly outpacing our ability to alter their course. Now, as somebody who is deeply embedded in the search for life in the universe, I can tell you that the more you look for planets like Earth, the more you appreciate our own planet itself. Consider our neighbor, Mars. It's possible that Mars was habitable in the past, and in part, this is why we study Mars so much. Our rovers, like Curiosity, crawl across its surface, scratching for clues as to the origins of life as we know it. Orbiters like the Maven mission sample the Martian atmosphere, trying to understand how Mars might have lost its past habitability. Private space flight companies now offer not just a short trip to near space, but the tantalizing possibility of living our lives on Mars. I worry. I worry that this excitement about colonizing Mars and other planets carries with it a long, dark shadow. The implication and belief by some. That Mars will be there to save us from the self-inflicted destruction of the only truly habitable planet we know of, the Earth. As much as I love interplanetary exploration, I deeply disagree with this idea. There are many excellent reasons to go to Mars, but for anyone to tell you that Mars will be there to back up humanity is like the captain of the Titanic telling you that the real party is happening later on the lifeboats. So, so as we've heard in this episode, there, there's there are plenty of people out there who、um, not only say we are going to get to Mars, but we will be able to build communities there. Like we'll be able to spend a long time there. I mean, do, do you think trying to get a human to Mars is a worthy goal? I think it depends a lot on what the motivation is. You know, a lot of the ideas that are being put forward,、um, for example, by companies like SpaceX, you see these like images of humans going to Mars in order to like transform the environment. This、yeah. idea of like terraforming、right. that we're going to take an entire planet and globally engineer its environment to be more hospitable to humans. For an astrobiologist, I look at that and I see giving up, even if humans go to Mars. Even if we have like a base of humans living on Mars at some point in the near future, the Earth is still the cradle of our species, and it's still ultimately our best platform for space exploration in general, because space exploration is resource intensive. It involves having enough resources and enough support for your、um, your basic needs that you can send some of it literally off your planet to support life where there is or none of those resources exist. So people believe that going to Mars is sort of this viable second option, when in fact, what we really need to be doing, even if we want to go to Mars, even if we have the best possible reasons for going, we still need to maintain the habitability of Earth and the ability of our environment to support not only spacefaring nations but also the many people on Earth whose basic needs are not met. The goals of interplanetary exploration and planetary preservation are not opposed to one another. No, they're in fact two sides of the same goal: to understand, preserve, and improve life into the future. If we can understand how to create and maintain habitable spaces out of hostile, inhospitable spaces here on Earth, perhaps we can meet the needs of both preserving our own environment and moving beyond it. I leave you with a final thought experiment: Fermi's paradox. Many years ago, the physicist Enrico Fermi asked that, given the fact that our universe has been around for a very long time and we expect that there are many planets within it, we should have found evidence for alien life by now. So where are they? Well, one possible solution to Fermi's paradox is that as civilizations become technologically advanced enough to consider living amongst the stars, 
they lose sight of how important it is to safeguard the home worlds that fostered that advancement to begin with. It is hubris to believe that interplanetary colonization alone will save us from ourselves, but planetary preservation and interplanetary exploration can work together. If we truly believe in our ability to bend the hostile environments of Mars for human habitation, then we should be able to surmount the far easier task of preserving the habitability of the Earth. If we, if we start to have a serious conversation about the next frontier, about becoming a spacefaring species, about colonizing Mars, um, one of the big points you make is that we can be inspired by space exploration, but we can't lose sight of the crazy things that are happening here. I mean, the, the melting of the ice caps and the increasingly warm temperatures and extreme weather events. Yeah, I think it's a, over the past couple of years, um, something that has been a really emerging theme for me has been that of human responsibility and also the human process of science as well. That we can be inspired by going to space, but it doesn't necessarily absolve us of the hard work that it takes to really become who we think we can be. You know, I think a lot of times people will just sort of casually say like, well, we're going to go to Mars and then, then we will look back at the Earth and, you know, world peace will break out and, you know, <laughs> all these wonderful things will come to pass. We'll really understand our place in the universe. Okay, we actually already did that experiment. You know, we already sent people to space and took a picture of the Earth did human nature suddenly <laughs> suddenly change right after that? Well, we had a new profound understanding of the Earth. That was certainly true. But it's not like there's something magical in Mars dust that will solve all of the problems that we have. And so, you know, I can both love space exploration and hold it to a higher standard that we shouldn't assume that we will solve things um, like climate change and our you know, fundamental human survival questions that we have. We can do both of those things at the same time, but not if we don't really talk about it and really grapple with what our challenges are. That's Lucianne Walkowicz. She's an astronomer at the Adler Planetarium and former chair of astrobiology at the Library of Congress. You can find her full talk at TED.com. Someday, little children, someday soon, there's going to be a lot of people, yeah, and they'll be living on the moon. Yeah, people living Hey, thanks for listening to our show on The Next Frontier this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpur, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Dareth Gales. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.